<clears throat> so um, I'll begin with um, Dogen, Zen Master. He's often called Zen Master Dogen's proclamation of enlightenment. He said, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to become intimate with all things. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget or let go of the self. To forget the self is to be awakened. Sometimes it's translated as awakened with all things or to become intimate with all things. Both translations are totally valid. And it's a, it's a quote that I've heard for many years and used for many years and that I love very much. I think it's very beautiful understanding of Buddhism and of path and practice and realization that we're really studying ourselves. We're not just trying to get rid of ourselves or deny ourselves or throw ourselves away, but we start to see that who's here and what's here is the doorway or the gateway to awakening or to freedom or to the Dharma or to liberation. And that quote, I've heard it used many times here by many different teachers. What, what often doesn't get said is the rest of the quote. So I want to include that, right? To study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget or let go of the self. To forget the self is to be intimate with all things. To be intimate with the myriad things is to drop off body and mind and the body and minds of others. To be intimate or to awaken with the myriad things is to drop off body and mind and the body and mind of others. No trace of enlightenment remains. And this no trace continues endlessly. No trace of enlightenment remains, and this no trace continues endlessly. So everybody understand that? <laughs> it's very Zen. <laughs> Beautifully Zen. Beautiful expression of awakening. And so I'd like to talk about this tonight and about what we're doing here, and what he's saying, and what is this kind of um, indescribable poetics about that Dogen is offering us as his understanding of realization. You know, to study the self is to forget the self. Yeah, beautiful Zen understanding that we start to let go of the reification of self or the concretization of self that we're used to. The idea, the belief, the history that we think, oh, that's me. 
That's me. This is who I am. This is what I am. We start to relax the um, solidification of that belief. And we also start to relax the solidification of the belief who others are, what others are. You know, and it's like, I, I don't know about you all, but I can, I can be on a retreat, or I used, you know, especially at the beginning, I would be on retreat, and I would be defining people by what socks they wore. You know, oh, that kind of person. You know, or, oh, they're cool, those are cool socks, you know. <laughs> you know, I had no idea who the person was, and I'm making it up, which we do all the time, even when we know people. We keep thinking, oh, now I know them, as if that's the truth. And so Dogen's pointing to a relaxing of the projection of our ideas about self-reality and other reality. And he says an interesting thing. He says something that's really kind of indescribable. And he says it. He says, no trace of intimacy remains and this no trace continues endlessly. I mean, if I can be really honest, like what the hell does that mean? (laughs) You know, no trace of intimacy, no trace of awakening remains, and this no trace continues endlessly. So he's pointing at something that we do with reality all the time, and that we do with the Dharma, because it's our habit of how we relate to beginning to know something, which is we get a definition and we believe the definition. We believe our idea, we believe our impression, we believe what we think. And he's saying, enlightenment is not a thing. Right? It's not a thing. It's not just an object. Oh, I'm going to get enlightened and then I'll be really cool, right? You ever see me when I walk down the street and I'm about two feet above the ground? Everybody knows I'm enlightened. Right? You've seen me, I'm sure, on the YouTube videos and stuff. Right? So we begin to see that enlightenment is not a thing and that it might not even be a state of mind. Because we're used to states of mind, so we think, oh, enlightenment, that must be a really good state of mind. That's the state of mind I want. That's the mind I want, is an enlightened mind. And we, Dogen starts to point us at the terrain we're entering when he says no trace of an awakening remains and this no trace continues endlessly. He's starting to point us at the undefinable reality that is freedom. That the unrigid, unhistoric, reality of the presence of freedom. He's also beginning to point us at how deepening in our practice starts to lead us into the mystery of reality and the unknowingness of reality and the unfamiliarity with the depth 
of reality. And it's not a bad thing that we all have an understanding of the surface of reality, of the usual, the everyday, the, you know, Eugene and Gina and Pamela every day and shopping and all that. That's, that's all great. That's, it's actually really good to know how to do that and buy your food and cook and everything. But there may be more also to reality that we have yet to learn, yet to discover. And that intuitively, the knowing of that brings us here. That we know there's more to being a human being. There's more for us to, to discover or learn. <clears throat> and in the, in the Tao Te Ching, Lao Tzu, Tzu says, where the mystery is the deepest, is the gate of all that is subtle and wonderful. Where the mystery is the deepest is the gate of all that is subtle and wonderful. And it's one of the beauties of Dharma practice is it keeps revealing reality and the depth and breadth and mystery and beauty and unfamiliarity of reality. And of course, when I say reality, as I said before, I'm talking about what's sitting in your seat. This reality, consciousness, aliveness, human reality. So Dharma will bring us into, and mindfulness particularly, says, okay, study the self. Start to pay attention to the reality that's sitting here. Let's, and let's start right where we are, because the reality is here. And let's include all of it. And we start to see that we have a lot, we have a lot of ideas about reality. We have a lot of beliefs about reality. And meditation starts to cultivate some other aspects of our mind, like beginner's mind. And it's a beautiful phrase, beginner's mind. How many people here, are, you know, think of yourself as a beginner? Let me just get a sense. Totally great, right? And you see who else does, right? Because she knows this talk. And, <laughs> and, but really, it's true, even if you've been practicing 20 or 30 years like we have, it's so helpful to let beginner's mind keep living because it's so close to the truth of reality. That reality is always fresh in the immediate moment. It's always new. It's always displaying itself. It's always revealing itself. And we have, in, you know, Suzuki Roshi said it this way. He said, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. Right? And it's one of the limitations of being an expert meditator. Is you think, oh, well, I know meditation. I know what happens. Oh, I know what they do at Spirit Rock. And, oh, yeah, I'll go sit for five days. And I'll probably have this and this happen. And that'll be it. And then we go about fulfilling our beliefs about what reality is. And it's always interesting, really, when we get freed 
from conventional reality because it opens up the window to a greater reality. And boy, I'm being a little hesitant how I'm going to say this, but freed, for example, personally, I was freed a little bit last year by having a very serious accident. And that was really interesting, meaning, and I mean serious, serious, like life or death, not clear if I was going to live or die, and a serious bike accident. And... Um, and uh, um, still, as they say, recovering, which is fascinating to watch happen because um, it so took away so much illusion to have that accident. So many of my, it was so clear, my ideas and my beliefs about reality were just ideas and beliefs. That reality, there's so much more for us to discover about reality, and that that's not a bad thing. That's a, actually a very cool thing in a certain way. Again, I don't recommend that technique <laughs> for anybody, but but some form of that technique will happen for all of us, right? Things won't go the way we expect, the way we want. We'll get sick, we'll get ill, we'll get old, we'll die. And then what happens? We're going to see, all of us. And so don't underestimate what's possible to discover about reality, which I sure have, and maybe probably still do, but I'm a little more open to paying attention than I ever was. And it's important for all of us, because we do it all the time. Here's a more scientific uh, example. Um, in what the Acoustical Society of America termed an astounding discovery, scientists are reporting that some frogs talk through their ears. <laughs> UCL researchers found that frogs use their ears as boomboxes and loudspeakers to amplify and broadcast plaintive croaks and ribbits. And, and then they go on in some detail how they thought the frogs had did this, but then they realized, no, no, that's not what they were doing. And then they say, you know, they had this idea, you know, about the sack, the vocal sack that frogs have. And then they said, but nobody bothered to check, right? And then the UCLA scientists documented that bullfrogs, the largest frogs in North America, radiate 98% of their calls through their eardrums. So I feel... <laughs> so I feel like I was in good company when I <laughs> stopped thinking I knew so much. And what happens when we don't know so much is we open up to another level of spiritual, another domain of spiritual reality called not knowing. And not knowing is highly valued in contemplative life. And it's not something that's valued generally in human life. In human life, we want to know as much as we can. And that's one of the things we're really encouraged when we're young, like 
learning in our culture is a big deal. It's a good thing. But do you remember, does anybody here, or maybe it's just me, remember when you were a kid and you really thought that adults knew what was going on? <laughs> you know, you really thought like, oh, they really understood, or they, they knew what was happening or how things should be. And then as you start to grow up, you realize they're making it up. <laughs> and now we're making it up. And it's not a bad thing. And we can keep making it up. But if we believe what we're making up is the totality of reality, then we miss this dimension of not knowing and the potential that can happen for awakening based on not knowing. Um, Sun Sunim, who was uh, also a wonderful Zen teacher who I, I met a couple times, he was a totally wild guy, really fun and funny. He uh, his main teaching was only don't know, only don't know. And then you see what's here, or you see what happens, or you see what appears in a moment. But before that, you don't know. And Krishnamurti, who was, uh, uh, um, I don't know how to talk about Krishnamurti. He was a proposed guru who denied his guruship, right? I mean, he really, he, he was, he was, you know, kind of elevated into guruhood. And then he said, oh, this is just bullshit. You know, I'm not a guru and nobody's a guru. And then he lived as a guru for the next 40 years. <laughs> and he wrote a book called Freedom from the Known. Freedom from the Known. And I loved the title Freedom from the Known. And I love the title really so much, I never read the book. Because <laughs> I felt like he said it all, he nailed it in the title. I didn't want to know what he said about it. But he pointed to something that <laughs> the knowing can limit us or imprison us when we live in, the, in what we know, and so we end up looking at reality like this. We're looking through what we know instead of seeing what we don't know. And the knowing's very comfortable and makes us feel safe and secure, and that's fine, and it has its place. And it's, it's actually beautiful, all the things we know. It's just not the end of what's here. <clears throat> Is Suzuki Roshi, there's a story about Suzuki Roshi where one of his disciples said, you talked about the first principle again, first principle of Buddhism. And, and the student said, but I still don't know what it is. I said to Suzuki, the student's writing, I don't know, he said, is the first principle, right? This is what brings us here, not just brings us here, it takes us all the way to awakening, not knowing. <clears throat> and again, I don't want to degrade or put down knowledge at all. I think knowledge is beautiful. I love knowledge and knowing and learning. But it's um, not all that it's cracked up to be. Especially, it seems like in Western culture, where it's so highly elevated, you know, especially kind of intellectual knowing or mental knowing or conceptual knowing. Because um, 
when we come on a meditation retreat, what we're pointing you at is experiential knowing. Right? That's why what we say, it's, it's all good, but it's all in the service of you starting to pay attention to the living reality of what's sitting in your seat moment by moment by moment and getting more intimate, getting closer to it, starting to um, meld with it or merge with it or mingle with it in a way where it starts to reveal more of reality. Not just a conceptual idea of reality, but the living truth of what is sitting here. And there's um, often a, um, a mixed feeling we have about not knowing. Um, like, uh, I'll, be, I'll be telling you my own self. So since my accident, which had a big impact on me and was, you know, who knew what was going to happen and all that kind of stuff. And, um, um, and I had a brain injury, which is a rare but not uncommon thing to happen. And um, uh, and so one of the things that's changed for me is uh, about teaching is even when I have a talk, I have no idea what's going to come out of my mouth. I mean, really. And it's, on one hand, oh, it's great. It's the not knowing. On the other hand, well, you know, I don't like it sometimes. I would like to know what the hell I'm going to say. But that... That doesn't work for me anymore in the way that used to. I used to be really much clearer about what was coming or what was going to come out. And so now it's much more interesting, but there can be a little anxiety or fear or not. I I just don't know what's going to come. And, you know, mostly what I know is I don't do anything too bad, so I'm happy about that. But um, uh, it points to something which is we don't want to believe in the unknown, in what's unknowable. We stop thinking. We start thinking we know. Here's a quote from H.L. Mencken, who was a journalist, who said, penetrating so many secrets, we cease to believe in the unknowable. But there it sits, nevertheless, calmly licking its chops. And it's one of the beauties of reality, one of the mysteries of reality, and one of the things that uncomforts us about reality is we don't know what's going to happen or how things are going to go. Or, again, for myself, you know, I was on a bike ride when I had my accident, and I've done a zillion bike rides, and I was... If, here, I'll tell you a little more. I was on the Buddhist bike pilgrimage, right? <laughs> it's totally paradoxical on a certain <laughs> level. <laughs> I was on the Buddhist bike pilgrimage, which starts here and rides for two days up Buddhist centers, ending at Abayagiri and, um, in Mendocino. And they'd asked me, and I'd done it before, and they'd ask me each time, well, would you say something? you know, as part of the pilgrimage. And I'm like, sure, you know, whatever. They said, well, why don't you do the opening talk? You know, and and of course, the Buddhist bike pilgrimage is not my, I'm not in control of that. 
and they, they, then they tell me, oh, here's what we want you to talk about. They don't just say, oh, give a talk. They, and so they said, we want you to talk about not knowing. Actually, I'm just remembering this as I give this talk. And I said, oh, sure, I love not knowing. You know? <laughs> and so I gave the talk, and then I lived the talk, right? And gave it in a whole other way to the other hundred people who were on the retreat. And also my wife got a close uh, view of that whole talk. Oh, Lordy. But, but we don't know what's going to happen. And stuff happens. And it can scare us or give, make us anxious or, or temper us in some way so we don't want to go forward. And, um, and it's, not, it's not a bad thing, the fear or the anxiousness or the concern. or the, It's normal human thing. And it becomes part of practice, not something that limits us, not something that ends our practice as we start to enter the unknown. This is from uh, Malala Yousafzai, Yousafzai who, was, um, who said she was a 15-year-old girl who uh, was an activist for female education in Pakistan who survived the assassination from the Taliban recently. And she said, I don't mind if I have to sit on the floor at school. All I want is an education. I don't mind if I have to sit on the floor. All I want is an education. And I am afraid of no one. And that's part of the spirit of practice, of the truth of seeing what we're doing and going for it. And it doesn't mean there's not some fear or anxiety or anything, but the fear doesn't stop us. So not knowing, which is again very valuable in contemplative life, There's a saying in Zen that I love from one of the Zen stories that I've also never read in detail, um, where they say, not knowing is most intimate. Not knowing is most intimate. And that's one of the beauties of having a retreat with the theme of intimacy, because it's not about, oh, you should know how to do this. No, we discover it by not knowing. It, makes, it brings us even closer. You ever notice when you first meet someone and you have a crush on them, but you don't really know them, and then you start to get together, it's like there's this tremendous intimacy in the not knowingness of two people discovering one another. And then you've been with them for three months or six months or a year, and then you know them. Now you're bored. Now you don't want to... You know, because you think you know them. The intimacy, the, re, the, the uh, not knowing consciousness lets us stay awake to the mystery of reality in, in every form that it shows itself, which is every form sitting here is a form of reality that's mysterious, that's unique that is not defined by our ideas of what we think I am or she is or he or they. And mindfulness can 
support our opening to the unknown and to the mysterious. This is from Stephen Batchelor. He said, as mindful awareness becomes stiller, as mindful awareness becomes stiller and clearer, experience becomes not only more vivid, but simultaneously more baffling. The deeper we know something in this way, the more deeply we don't know it. And that's a beautiful understanding of the Dharma and of reality, because reality is a total mystery, as far as I can tell. And it's expressing itself in each of us and in everything, and it's part of the reality we are manifesting and living in and discovering. And I, again, I think it's an exciting part of practice and an interesting, fascinating part of practice that we begin to let go or not be attached or, as Dogen would say, forget our, our uh, views or our opinions or what we know and, and all the ways we're, you know, um, identified. Even, even our attachment to Buddhism, to let go of that. You know, it's great to become a Buddhist, but it's not the end of the story of what's actually here. <clears throat> From my friend Jack Cornfield said, living fully, living fully means jumping into the unknown. Jumping into the unknown, dying to all our past and future ideals and being present with things just as they are. It is only by such surrender to the moments of truth that we can participate in the mystery of our lives. <clears throat> and it's valued, I mean, Jack valuing it, or I'm valuing it, or Stephen Batchelor, or, who, or whoever, or, or Malala Yosafzi valuing it. But it's the discovery of reality. And what a beautiful thing to participate in, to use this life, this consciousness, to see what is it? Who are we? What is it to be here? EQ, who is one of my great friends from the, I believe, 17th century. Again, I, to my memory is a little bad from my accident, so I can't remember when we were friends exactly, but... But EQ, who's a, who, if you want to read a really um, bad boy Zen master, check out EQ. He's a totally cool guy. Um, he, said, he said, this brick house I live in is really the sky and just as precious. This brick house I live in is really the sky and just as precious. Right? So there's the reality we have and we know, and then there's more to reality than we might consider. There's more to discover. So I'm definitely giving you a Zen talk tonight. So I'm going to continue with a story, a really Zen story that I love and that I discovered God knows where. But it, it's, it's an interesting Zen story. You'll see what you think, and I'll read the whole story, and then I'll, I'll make a few comments on the story. So here's the story about Zen master Setsugin and his student Jijo. 
So Setsugin says to Jijo, if you meditate single-mindedly without interruption for seven days and nights and still do not attain realization, if you meditate single-mindedly, devotedly, a lot of concentration, continuity, without interruption for seven days and nights and yet still do not attain realization, you can cut off my head and make my skull into a night soil scoop. <laughs> How many people here know what a night soil scoop is? <laughs> I'm going to tell you. <laughs> Maybe a couple. It's a shit stick. It's for cleaning up the poop after guys would go poop, you know, in this monastery. So, so, so Setsugin's pretty confident about what he's saying. <laughs> And he, he goes on, and then the story goes on. Not long after that, Jijo came down with a case of dysentery. Taking a bucket to a secluded place, he sat on it and held his attention in right mindfulness. When he had sat on the bucket for seven straight days, <laughs> that's his end story, and he had sat on the bucket for seven straight days. One night he suddenly sensed the whole world like a snowy landscape under bright moonlight and felt as if the entire universe were too small to contain him. Okay, you get, I'm going to say that again. He sat for seven straight days. He suddenly sensed the whole world like a snowy landscape under bright moonlight and felt as if the entire universe were too small to contain him. He had been absorbed in this state for a long time when he was startled into self-awareness on hearing a sound. He found his whole body running with sweat and his sickness had disappeared. In celebration, he wrote this verse. Radiant, spiritual, what is this? The minute you blink your eyes, you've missed it. The spatula by the toilet shines with light. After all, it was just me all along. Okay? So that's your Zen story for the night. And it's a Zen story I love. Really, I love And I love his poem. And it's very common in in Zen and in Buddhism in some in a broader sense that people will write a poem or write some verse or write something after they wake up. And it's part of the creative expression of awakening. So he says, radiant, spiritual, what is this? The minute you blink your eyes, you've missed it. The spatula by the toilet shines with light. After all, it was just me all along. So a few things here, a few pieces I'd like to point out. One is the Zen story with Setsugin and Jijo. Starts with relationship. And it's something I've learned a lot from Pamela, who was a Zen student for many years, about Zen in general. Almost all the teachings are about relationship. And I love that. I think that's so beautiful because we have all kinds of ideas about relationship or enlightenment. No, we do it alone. And, we're, and 
we don't do it alone. We do it together. <clears throat> and the story is uh, an amazing story of their relationship, Satsugin and Jijo. And Jijo trusts him enough to listen to him and then wakes up. And in Buddhism, and this is a very, not a widely known list in Buddhism, but I discovered it's called the Patihariya. And you know, like there's a, you know, there's the four noble truths or the four foundations of mindfulness or the three characteristics or the five hindrances or the five aggregates or the seven factors of enlightenment or the eightfold path or the, you know, I can go on and on, a lot of number things. Well, this is the three marvels, the patihariya, the three marvels that the Buddha talked about and the, the, that, that, uh, were both ascribed to him and that he spoke about. And the first marvel is the marvel of magic. And the second marvel is the marvel of mind reading. And in the magic is beautiful. I'm not going to go into it, but there's a lot of different kinds of magic that you can learn and that happen in practice. And if, you know, if you start walking through walls or anything, come and just let us know so we can be aware of that. And, but... But magic can happen, mind reading can happen, and it's like, oh, there's, there's direct knowing that can happen. And then the third marvel that the Buddha described and that he valued, he actually a little bit puts down the first two marvels. And he says, this is the marvel worth paying attention to, which is the marvel of instruction which is the marvel that human beings learn and grow together. That, we, that everything we're doing here has all been handed down human being to human being to human being to right here, to right now. And it's not, oh, you know, Larry or Gina or me or Pamela. It's, it's all been handed down to us and before that to them. And, you know, like I could say, oh, Jack was one of my first teachers, Jack Cornfield, you know, but Ajahn Chah was his teacher, you know, but before Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Mun was his teacher. And before Ajahn Mun, so it comes person to person to person. And that, the Buddha said, that's a marvel to pay attention to, the marvel of instruction, the marvel of learning and discovery and the kind of gratitude and appreciation that comes with that. And it was beautiful. It's been beautiful in the interviews. A number of people have been talking about gratitude and, and how that arises as we get present, as we get here, as we start to see reality with the eyes of reality. So I like that about the story. I like the relational part. I also like that it includes our vulnerability, right? Jijo has the shits, right? Anybody here ever have dysentery beside me? Couple, couple, yeah. It's, it's humbling. That's, that's my version of dysentery. I had dysentery in Asia many, many, many long time ago, but it surprised me. I wasn't expecting it. And then, of course, later, and this was in Kathmandu, I got sick. 
And when I, I said, I told somebody what was happening, somebody who lived there, who I was friends with, I was hanging out with, and uh, he said, uh, he said, how, well, oh, where, where have you eaten? I said, oh, I ate at Indira's, which was an Indian restaurant. He said, oh, that's the filthiest kitchen in Kathmandu. You should never eat there. I said, well, thanks for telling me now, you know. <laughs> but so I had dysentery, and it was, it was humbling. It was, um, it was humbling also because I was kind of punky and uh, I didn't go to a doctor and I did what my friends told me to do, which is, oh, just eat a little opium, it'll bind you up. And it actually works great, but it, it has its limitation. <laughs> and, but, but I did have enough to get back to America. And it was, that was a whole other story about getting through customs with it. But, but I did. And uh, <laughs> again, this is, this is so long ago, I couldn't get arrested for it now. <laughs> Anyhow, but it's, it's humbling. And it's part of, it's, an, it's a part of reality that's surprisingly um, uh, illuminating is when we get humbled. It's not a bad thing. Humble, there's humble and... Um, um, uh, the word humus, like the earth, it brings us down to earth, our humility a little bit. And that's where we will discover reality in this, in this earth that's walking, as Larry said, the earth that we are, the, the, the living beingness that we are. <clears throat> Yeah, let's see how much I have here. Let's see if I can get to the end of this talk. So I think I wanted to mention the vulnerability because I think everybody experiences some vulnerability on retreat, right? I mean, just socially, it's a whole different culture that's created on retreat. Wherever you're from, whatever your culture is, generally... We don't live in cultures where we're not interacting socially. We, we just don't do that. Most cultures interact socially, talk. You know, if they have their divisions, that's fine. But still, within their divisions, they interact. So at a retreat, we're, we're not doing that. We're not promoting our socialness. We're not getting friendly to feel comfortable. We're actually looking to be here to wake up. And so there's a different priority that's here. And we can feel vulnerable when we're not socially comfortable or we're not in the culture we're used to. It could be any culture we're not used to or we're in a, con a culture that really predominates in some way and it's not um, accepting of us or open to us. Totally feel vulnerable in that. And so... Vulnerability also arises because the Dharma will reveal not just how beautiful you are, which it does, and how amazing you are, or how magical you are, but also your fears, or your foibles, or your sadnesses, or your grief, or your inability, or your limitations, because it's not prejudice, the Dharma. It's not just trying to get one part of you and not the other part of you. It's, it's about all of you. 
whether we think those parts are positive or not. It starts to challenge the judging mind by saying, awakening happens here in this reality, in this human reality, not in some idea of some perfect human being who we should be or want to be or somebody thinks we should be. And I always love the line from the poet Rilke who said, ultimately, it is on our vulnerability that we depend. That it continues to open us to reality. <clears throat> and it challenges conceptual, consensual reality. And we all get identified or attached to or hold on to conceptual reality in this way, like I was saying before, it blocks out what we don't know, or the depth of reality, or the unknownness of reality. Here, I'll give you a nice example, or a couple examples of myself, which is, I remember this one time um, going to the dentist, and he was gonna do a little, some kind of little bit of surgery, you know, and I'm a Buddhist and I'm, you know, I'm cocky at times. So I'm like, oh, I want to watch. Can I have a mirror and watch you do the surgery? And he, he knew me well enough to say, oh, sure. You know, and he gives me a mirror and I, and I like this. And I watch him and all of a sudden, and I just, he's going to do something, but I, I don't really get it. Sir. Oh, he's cutting open the gum and peeling back the flesh and there's the bone. And I'm think, and I had an interesting response because I, I was trying to be mindful. And I thought, this is not me. And it was really an interesting. Oh, this is bone. This is not me. And something happened. I don't even know how to explain this, but I'll just tell you. And it was like consciousness just filled the room. It was like it it ceased to just be landed right here. It was like everywhere. And it was, and I liked it. It wasn't, it was, it was definitely interesting. Again, it's not the kind of practice I suggest you should do. You know, definitely not for everyone, but you know, it, it worked for me. It was very interesting and funny, this is an aside, but the dentist, um, Dr. Watson, the great guy who I still see now, I've seen him for a long, long, long time, about 10 years ago, he got into Buddhism and he, and he started coming to Spirit Rock. He never knew who I was or what I did. He knew I was into Buddhism a little, but he thought I was a cab driver somehow. He told me this <laughs> later. <laughs> this is true. And then, and then he started coming to Spirit Rock and all of a sudden I would come in and he would, oh, Eugene, how are you? Like, now I was somebody. <laughs> It was totally sweet. He's a good guy. And if you need a good dentist in San Francisco, Dr. Watt, James Watson, say you're a friend of mine. So, or other ways we can practice through normal reality. Like I was just seeing something that happens all the time, going to the dentist. and um, This is a little more extreme. And again, more to who I am was the right thing was I've, did, done a lot of work with death and dying in my life. 
God knows why, really, but I was drawn to it at a relatively young age, not because of Buddhism. And I became a hospice worker and was trained. And even before I was trained, I did hospice work and and being with people who were dying and sitting with bodies. And, you know, it, it, it was practice. And so I was doing it a while, and I was... I was good at it, and meaning I was open to it and interested in it, and I knew how to stay present and awake with people when they were ill or sick or dying, and with the families, too, who would come. So, um, and Frank Ostaseski, who was one of the founders of the Zen Hospice Project, he was... He called me up after I'd been there a while. He said, there's a new hospice opening. I would like you to go and be part of it. It's in the Castro in San Francisco. And the Castro, as most people know, is mainly a a gay neighborhood. And I said, okay, sure, I'll go. And, you know, and it was in what had been a small zendo in a building. And um, um, uh, Maitri Hospice, it's called. And I went, and they had one person there, and it was, um, uh, I'm forgetting the name of the um, the monk. Isan Dorsey. So God bless Isan Dorsey, who, what a beautiful being, really, who had opened it up. He was the monk of the monastery, and this was happening in his world. And he said, well, let's take care of people who are dying. And he did. And so he had taken his first person in, and I come in and I said, uh, okay, what do you want me to do, Isan? And Isan said, oh, I'm glad you're here. We have one person here, JD. He's he's probably going to die in the next few days. And he's not conscious or barely conscious. And you'll, you'll just go up and sit with him. And I'm like, okay. So I go up and, you know, and there's Isan who's lying in bed like this. J.D., yeah, thank you. J.D. is lying in bed. Isan still was upright at that point. (laughs) Isan had been around, though. Anything could happen. But, yeah, J.D., so J.D. is kind of flapping. And um, and so, and and Isan says, okay, uh, you know, tell me when you're done in four or five hours, right? That's a shift. So I said, okay. And I sit down. I sit down next to J.D. And I sit there a little. And then I just put my hands on him to hold his hands in place. And and I can see that's good, right? You you see if something works or not, because you don't know, and then he's fine. And then, you know, and then I'm talking to him a little, and I see, oh, he's getting a little bit. He's there. It's just clearly a really hard time. And so I'm holding him, and he, we're hanging out. And then, you know, do you want a little water? And I, you know, I know, knew how to help him get a little water in his mouth where you, you take a straw, hold one end, so you hold the water and then release the water a little bit so he can swallow it. And then at some point, I fed him a little teeny little bites of a strawberry, something, a piece of fruit. And, and then... At some point, I, and we're doing fine, and we're getting, you know, we're having, we're getting to know each other, really. And at some point, I said something. I said, um, uh, do, you, do you need, are you uncomfortable? And he said, yeah, move, move me. Can you, can you move me? Can you sit me up? And this, I didn't know how to do it well. It's, it's a real art that I know how to do, because you're moving 
it's not the it's bad it's not a great way to say it but i'm going you're moving what feels like dead weight because there's not a lot of fluidity in the body so it's heavy and you know he's not a big man but i'm not a big guy either so so i'm trying to move him and it's a little uncomfortable and he and finally I said, oh, how is that, uh, uh, J.D., how does that feel? And, and then just like this, he said, it feels like I'm God and you're a saint. <laughs> and I was, that woke me up. <laughs> really, I was, was like, whoa. And I, you know, and I thought, well, he could be right. You know, really, and I and I still think that really because it was, it was wild, and you know, so all I'm suggesting is our ideas about reality may have their limits, and we may keep discovering more about reality. And just so you know, JD had an amazing experience, which is he started getting better. And he didn't die in three days. And I kept going. I would go once or twice a week and do a shift with him. And all kinds of shit happened with J.D. and Isan. I'll tell you. Someday I'll tell that. But, um, but um, he really started getting better. And he got so much better, they had to kick him out of the hospice. You can't get better in a hospice. <laughs> really, this is true. And he ended up living a couple more years. So... That's what I mean about we don't know what's going to happen. And beautiful to, to have our consensual reality challenge. And so awakening, as Dogen pointed to, means to enter the experience of freedom from the known. And this is from a woman named Tony Packer. And Tony beautiful Zen teacher, she said, the emergence and blossoming of understanding, love, and intelligence has nothing to do with any tradition, no matter how ancient or impressive. It has nothing to do with time. The emergence and blossoming of understanding, love, and intelligence has nothing to do with tradition, time, It happens completely on its own when a human being questions, wonders, listens, and looks without getting stuck in fear, pleasure, or pain. And I love that she combined all of those, without getting stuck in fear, pleasure, or pain. When self-concern is quiet, in abeyance, heaven and earth are open. The mystery, the essence of all life, is not separate from the silent openness of simple listening, of simple mindfulness. That what you're doing here is the doorway to freedom. And it's right, it's available for each person in this room, in this planet, in this life. And so Jijo's poem, Radiant Spiritual, what is this? Which is, of course, the great Zen question. What is this? They're talking about right now. What is this? The minute you blink your eyes, you've missed it. The spatula by the side of the toilet shines with light. After all, it was just me all along. 
So again, from Stephen Batchelor, his more, a little more Vipassana version, using the three characteristics of Anicca, Anatta, and uh, uh, Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta, which is impermanence, suffering, and uh, selflessness. He says, repeatedly embracing dyna- the dynamic, precarious, and selfless, that's Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta, the dynamic, precarious, and selfless flow of experience gradually erodes this ingrained conviction of our separate existence. To enhance this further still, it helps to let go not just of attachment to a fixed self, but of all views that confine and fix experience. This can be achieved by recognizing that however we describe it, even as dynamic, precarious, selfless, what is happening is utterly mysterious. This reality, this amazing moment of our life right now will never happen again. And that's not a bad thing. It's not a mistake. This is what life is. It happens. It will never happen again. I believe it's Suzuki Roshi who said, when I realized that whatever I thought had happened will never happen again, he said, then I began to wake up. The minute you blink your eyes, you've missed it. It's here, it's now, it's in the presence, it's in the awareness. The spatula by the toilet shines with light. What a beautiful Dharma teaching, really, for all of us, right? I just love that. It's everywhere. Or as Kabir said, he said, when the eyes and the ears are open, even the leaves on the trees teach like pages from the scriptures. Of course, we could put it, when the eyes and the ears are open, even when the sheets of toilet paper uh, come down, they're like pages from the scriptures. (laughs) Maybe that didn't work so well. (laughs) Uh, And then the last line, the last line of the story, after all, it was just me all along. That's the teaching we can't believe. After all, it was just me all along. As Oscar Wilde said, he said, the final mystery is oneself. And in contemplative cultures, they often say, you are what you seek. What you're looking for, it's right here. It's nowhere else. Or everywhere else is the other way to say it. We don't appreciate the uniqueness of what's sitting right here. Margaret Wheatley said, she said, stability is found in freedom. It's just such a paradox. Stability is found in freedom, not in conformity or compliance. She says, it is differentness that enables us to thrive. It's our uniqueness, who you are, which is totally unique. There's only one of each of us, each one here. 
beautiful manifestation of the Dharma in its uniqueness, in its originality, in its here-ness, in its now-ness. We don't get Buddha nature. We are Buddha nature. I'll read one last quote and then end. And it's from my teacher's teacher, my teacher's teacher. So like if I say Jack Cornfield's my teacher, it's from Ajahn Chah. And he's beautifully human about the Dharma and his understanding of the Dharma. He said, in our search for the Dharma, we, we search too far. We overreach, overlooking the essence. The Dharma is not out there to be gained by a long voyage viewed through a telescope. It's right here. It's right here, nearest to us, our true essence, our true self, no self. When we see this essence, there are no problems, no troubles, good, bad, pleasure, pain, light, dark, self, other, empty phenomena. If we come to know this essence, we die to our own sense of self and become truly free. Let's sit for a minute. If we come to know this essence, we die to our old sense of self or forget the self, as Dogen would say, and become truly free. you for your kind attention. We'll have about mm, 25 minutes for... Um... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.